Exton Moss Experiment. Adventures in Wine and Space with Simon Exton and Ken Moss. everyone, and a very warm welcome to the Exton Moss Experiment. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. We are recording our tribute to Doctor Who, our annual event on the 23rd of November. We're celebrating 58 years of Doctor Who. And tonight we are watching the 2017 Christmas special, Twice Upon a Time. Love, pride, hate, fear. Have you no emotions, sir? I'm the Doctor! I am the Doctor. Something has gone very wrong with time. We're trapped inside a single moment. So sorry. I don't suppose either of you is a Doctor. You're trying to be funny. These police boxes, they're ever so good, aren't they? One little advantage. What advantage? There's two of us. Is he here? Is the doctor here? This was Peter Capaldi's final episode as the doctor, and it also features David Bradley as a recast first doctor. I absolutely unashamedly adore this one. What about yourself? I love it. I think it's absolutely marvellous. I don't have a problem with recasting. I know that you do. Mm. I think they explain why he looks different very well. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think they need to. I think that anybody who knows what the first Doctor looks like and ha- is interested in watching early Doctor Who is not going to be put off by a slightly different actor playing the same part. Well, we have had it before. We've had it in The Five Doctors, which was never explained away. However... And didn't need to be. Uh, yeah, you don't know Doctor Who fans very well, do you? I do. I just don't care what they think. <laughs> before we do all this, we need drinkies. It's time to get out the tonic screwdriver and open up the gin. Tonight we are drinking Butler's Gin. It's lemongrass and cardamom. It's 37.5% and the info bollocks is absent. It says Butler's Gin, established Hackney 2012. Juniper, lemongrass, cardamom and citrus notes bring something extraordinary to any occasion. So it's sort of um, cough and a spit really. This is one that you've brought. Where did you get it from? Because it looks quite homespun. Right. There's no distiller listed on it, apart from Butler's Gin. But the the distiller is actually listed as sources uh, as the type of gin. Anyway, ignore all of that. What are we getting on the nose? Not as much as I was expecting. Lemongrass. Not overpoweringly so. Anyway, eyes down. Whereas tasting cardamom is the, the stronger note. Yeah. Although you can taste the lemongrass, you can taste the, the ginny botanicals, and there's a, a barky undertaste. I think that's, that's rather nice. It's, very, it's refreshing gin. It, uh, that's a very, very good word. Yes, I will go with that. This is picnic in the sun gin. Neither of the flavours are overpowering, no. because both have the potential to be. Particularly cardamom. Well, I was going to say the lemongrass, but I'm sort of sensitive to it, because I'm not overly fond. But this doesn't... Hit you between the eyes. No, I think this is this is smooth. This is well blended. Um, whoever's made this knows what they're doing. I think this is lovely. Bernard's four. I'll give this a four. Yes, I like it. 
So without further ado, grab your glass and we'll descend into the under gallery here at Podcasting House to open up the Black Archive. Do you know what Spaff's been doing down there? I dread to think. It's all very quiet down here. That, that doesn't bode well. Anyway, what are we rescuing this time? Well, with Doctor Who, we tend to rescue Doctor Who. And I think we've now been through all of the missing episodes. I think so, yes. So, what I suggest we do to just tidy things up is that we would like back the colour master tapes for the missing... that are missing from the John Pertwee era. Oh, splendid, yes. Oh, can you imagine? Things like the demons, mind of evil, all nicely sparkly. Well, the demons is, apart from one episode. No, but one episode we've got is the, the master video. The rest of them are all... I knew that there was one. Yeah. Yeah, yeah and... That, this is no disrespect to the people who've done unbelievable work on colorization, and particularly the Chroma Dot work. Power of the Daleks 3 is the one that they've absolutely built from the ground up. Wouldn't that be lovely if they had it? A Planet of the Daleks. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if you want Power of the Daleks 3 in color, you're more than welcome to bring that back. That, the original recording. What they've done with Planet of the Daleks 3, and I know you're not big on the extras, when it was repeated in the early 90s on BBC One, part three stuck out a country mile because it was black and white on film. The rest of them were colour on videotape. Now, you put the Blu-ray in, to be quite honest, you wouldn't know. No, I mean, when we did that that episode, we specifically looked at part three and you could tell because we were looking for it. Yeah. And it, because in the middle of the story, it does stick out in a way that Invasion of the Dinosaurs 1 mm. doesn't. I will say this much. Um, the, video, the, the videotape masters for all of who. Oh, God. We would just... Oh, we'd be creaming ourselves over the quality now. Because they could do so much with that. Yeah, I think there's... Are there five or six that are um, original master, master transmissions? Yeah, and I think they're all from the Pertwee era. There's, there's nothing from the 60s, I don't yeah. think. Yeah, uh, the episodes that were originally transmitted from film, because they were kept in the film library. Yeah. And all but two of those survive. I think, it, is it Power of the Daleks 6 and Wheel in Space 5? Yes, those are the ones. That were transmitted from film, and those two episodes disappeared from the, the film and videotape library but all the others so isn't that how we got things like Underwater Menace 3 because that the effects were as I understand it so technical they had to master it on film rather than mastering it on video it's along those lines I, I would it's been a while now but I'm going to refer back to the splendid splendid book by Richard Molesworth wiped for any Doctor Who fans out there that are interested in the history of it's not only the history of Doctor Who and the missing episodes, it's also really how television was made and archived at that time. It's this colossal tome of a book, but it really, really doesn't feel it. That was a beautiful read from beginning to end. It was a, a gift from the great provider, Dr. Exton, and it was just sublime. But it, it, it gives you tantalising clues as to how Doctor Who was archived, how it was copied and sold around the world. And how it was recovered. Yes, and I can't plug that book enough, Wiped by Richard Molesworth. But it, it, it goes into very, very specific detail about individual episodes, how they were broadcast, even down to the dates that they were actually wiped. Yeah, and tells you that two episodes of the Reign of Terror were actually destroyed in civil wars twice. Twice, yes. yes in, in Cyprus and in Sierra Leone. Four and five of the Reign of Terror might not be on the list to turn up, but you never know. Well, where were we? As We've I understand it, season one was the one that had lots of copies made. Yes, it was. 
because I think there are about seven copies of Marco Polo from reading between the lines. Marco Polo, I am actually astounded, hasn't turned up. Because it seems the most likely one, to be honest. But having said that, uh, Dalek's Master Plan is the most likely because there's one copy made sent out to Australia. Um, they chose not to, to show it, so they sent it back. And three of the episodes that they sent back have turned up in private collections. So, Yeah. And, and Dalek's Master Plan, episode seven, reading between the lines, that was telecined. Might not have been sold abroad or sent abroad, because Dalek's Master Plan was actually marketed around the world as an 11-part series, not a 12 one. But Dalek's Master Plan 7 does look like it was done. So was Mission to the Unknown not sold around the world? I'd be lying if I said I could remember. But as far as I'm aware, they were all there up for sale around the world at some point. It's never There's never been anything that's not been up for sale. But the earliest wiping started in 1967. Because it was the Troughton stuff, a lot of that, the, the 66 stuff, they started wiping in 67. And there's some of that where there was a, a duplicate made, sent around the world, or offered for sale, and that's a, you've got one duplicate. The master's gone. Yeah. It's quite amazing that we've got any of the stuff that we've got from Troughton. And stuff coming back from seasons four and five, which are the ones that sold the poorest. Yeah. And we've actually got almost... We've got a, a very, very large chunk of season five. This has become a bit of a Doctor Who gush, but we are so well-served as Doctor Who fans. We've got everything. Regardless of whether it exists on video, we've got everything on audio. So we're getting animations now. On the whole, with the odd aberration, really, really magnificently done. Hmm. On the whole... I... I, I think Magnificently Done is stretching it for quite a few of them. There are some that are. I mean, things like The Invasion look wonderful. Evil of the Daleks. Evil wow. of the Daleks looks good. Um, but then you've got complete opposite end of the spectrum, Web of Fear 3, which is unwatchable. What were they thinking? Um, they were thinking, Gary Russell's a fan and he says he can do it. It's a might to theme tune, sing to theme tune but he's not actually particularly talented. I've got a problem with Web of Fear 3 because I love the fact that all the backgrounds and all the camera pans and all the the effects, they're really well done. It's just the... Every character looks as though they've got Parkinson's disease. And they're facially quite badly designed. It's sort of a, a hint of what the face is like. I feel really bad saying that because there is clearly a lot of effort. There's different animation styles. There's a lot of effort gone into all of them. Yes, but you can put a lot of effort into something and it still turns out rubbish. There should have been a little bit of quality control on Web of Fear 3, I've, I've got to admit, because and the, the character movements are odd. And the problem is, now that, we, now that it's been animated, it will be, a, oh, well, we've got the animation of Web of Fear 3. We move on. The fact that it's an unwatchable animation. Yeah. But somewhere out there, there is a bastard that's got Web of Fear 3, the actual film. Isn't there Philip Morris? We shall move on. I think it's time we close the door on the Black Archive. We've rambled on enough. Do you fancy stepping next door into the gift shop? Sunshine, lollipops and green bows. Everything that's wonderful is what I feel when we're together. Well, since we're about to watch Twice Upon a Time... Oh, I know both, what you're about to say. Well, yes, we've both I got agree. the same feeling on this. When they were filming Twice Upon a Time, they did a lot, a lot of reconstruction on the Tenth Planet. Even going so far as to building the full set and doing a lot of scenes that we haven't seen yet. 
And for some bizarre reason, they've never been released on DVD as extras. They weren't shown as part of the episode itself. All the stuff that they recorded for Twice Upon a Time on that 10th Planet set, I would love to see that. So yeah, that, that's what I'd like. It's a bit Shardarish, really, isn't it? I cannot believe the effort that went in. I mean, we've had about 20 versions of Shardar now. For a lost story, he's had more releases than a lot of stuff that actually exists. But Shardar, the, the effort they went to for the... When was it? Was it 2018, 2019 re-release? Yeah, it would have been. And they rebuilt the TARDIS set from 1979. I love Shardar so much. There's not enough love in the world to pour on Shardar. Yeah. What I was thinking about with Shardar is, with the change of producer, and I can understand why it was done, but the decision was made not to finish it, as would have been the plan that probably had Graham Williams carried on, and we got Megalos instead. And I can understand why, but we got Megalos instead of Shardar. You've always been bitter about this. Yes, and will continue to be. With the Twice Upon a Time extras, I suspect there was an element of decision from the incoming production team that I want to stamp my tiny little boots all over this and I'm not interested in what other people have done before with a side order of this makes my stuff look really bad so I'm not going to allow you to release it. Well, the one thing that strikes me about Twice Upon a Time, it was released on DVD and Blu-ray almost immediately. It was They didn't fuck about with this. But the, all the DVD menu screens have been quite lavish. The DVD menu screen for Twice Upon a Time is basic, to say the least. And there are bits missing from it. It was sort of a, a tack-on at the end of the era. I'm, I'm really hoping, actually, that... You know, the collection Blu-ray sets, mm. I'm hoping they start on the new series and do them to that standard. Because there's so much... To, the new series, really, in comparison, has not been treated the same way as the classic releases. They're doing steelbooks for the ball. They are, but it'd be lovely if they were given the same real loving treatment that the collection box sets are. The problem is, as soon as you go down that route, then all 12 or 13 or 14 or however many series will be done before any more classic is done. Because they'll sell better. Uh, actually, the, the classic Who, it sells better than New Who. At the minute. So, oh, okay. Um, it's Classic Who is a big seller for the BBC. They know that immediately it's going to be in the top ten as soon as they put one out. So that's why they've never been particularly shy about putting them out. And for something that's got, or that had, I don't know whether it still does, a reputation with the general public, the not we, as being something a bit shaky and shit, it's still, pow, straight to the top. It's a comforting thought, really. Should we close it? We've got our DVD copy now, our shiny DVD and Blu-ray copies of all the Twice Upon a Time, Tenth Planet stuff. Should we actually go and watch Twice Upon a Time? Yes. Ladies and gentlemen, we give you Peter Capaldi's swan song, Twice Upon a Time. I love the way they've reused it. See, the problem that it's a lovely little nod to the past using all this hard enough footage from 10th Planet. I can see a special edition coming on. A lovely morph into David Bradley and colour footage. Problem is, they've chosen an actor and actress who look nothing like Ben and Polly. And you've seen Ben in the previous scene, and he's suddenly grown about a foot. 
It's Michael Craze, great actor, not blessed with height. Gormless looking bloke. Looks like he stepped out of Oasis. But he's he's a lot taller than. Um, but they could have they could have avoided having either of those in shot, and they could have had archive clips of Michael Craze and Annika Wills. Not for that scene they could, because that was Ten Planet Four, and it doesn't exist. No, they've got the audio for it though. And look at what they've done with the audio on stuff that doesn't exist. I remember seeing this scene at the end of The Doctor Falls and punching the air. The idea that the 12th and 1st Doctors were going to meet, I think it was a a story that was first mooted in the Daily Mirror or something, so it was pinch of salt, hello, and then it actually happened. Fantastic, something to look forward to. There it is, there's the the moment. Oh. oh, oh, and and people say that they don't write for fans. He, he does a brilliant Hartnell. He does. There are certain shots in this where you would swear that it actually was Hartnell. I mean, the lighting that they're doing with this, with go, going from say, yellows to blues, absolutely marvellously done. And this frozen snowflake effect. It's brilliant. And it's actually really nice that they've recreated the, the 60s look with a backdrop paint. Yes, it, they've, they've not, they could have gone overboard with this. Ah, Mark Gacy's, I think it's his fourth on-screen appearance in Who? I'm not a fan of the theme tune, but I do like this title sequence. I love that um, clock spiral thing. There was a fan version of this, which that was the inspiration for this. It's actually better. There is something I should like to say. That is, there is something I should very much like you to understand. The, oh, the whole stiff upper lip thing. It does fit in with the whole Lethbridge-Stewart thing, though. The German soldier is Toby Whithouse, who is uh, the writer of several episodes. Because he did School Reunion. Can't remember any of the others. Oh, the frozen flame effect is it's beautiful. brilliant. And a pigeon. A speckled Jim. <laughs> you shot my speckled Jim, the Flanders pigeon murderer. The glass mannequin is a nice effect mm. as well. See, I'll stand by my assertion nothing happens in this episode. It's a real non-event. You're watching this purely for the spectacle, and yet, it's beautiful. Because looking back on the final episodes of all the Doctors, they've been big, major, colossal events. This, 
story-wise, is one of the weakest in Doctor Who, and yet you're just watching this, loving it. This is Earth, a level five civilization, and it is protected. This (laughs) one. This is a wonderful scene. I do really like this TARDIS set. Again, of the new Who TARDIS sets, this is my favourite. Always remember where you parked. It's going to come up a lot. I liked it when it was Matt Smith's, but they've just... When Capaldi took over, they tweaked it with bookcases and things. World War One. Judging by the uniform, yes. Yes, but what do you mean? He wouldn't even have called it the Great War in 1914, would he? No. Who are you? You know who I am. You knew the moment you saw me. I'd say stop being an idiot, but I kind of know what's coming. Oh, sneaky little reference to Trout in there. I do like the way the new series has done the standardised regeneration with the Artron energy. Agreed, yes. Um, because it got a little bit, what are we going to do about it next, uh, yeah. this time? Although Hartnell and McCoy both have sort of energy flashes, don't they? Baker to McCoy. The Hartnell regeneration that I still think is one of the most impressive ones. There's the Hartnell one. Davison to Baker one, I love. I actually love the Baker to McCoy one. I will ask outright, weakest of the lot. Troughton. It's all done jokey. Ah, yes, to be fair. Oh, now here we go. There's this whole thing that they do throughout this episode. It's about the only thing I don't particularly care for. They play on the Him first being... Doctor's sexism. It was never that bad. No. Have you had some of this? Well, you know, I may have snuck our glass at some point in the last 1,500 years. It's been rock and roll. I like the fact that the first Doctor's all pious about alcohol, but when Ian Chesterton invites him to a, a pub for a goodbye drink, he sort of, well, go on then, yes. What's wrong with the lights? It's supposed to be like this. Why? It's, it's atmospheric. Atmospheric. This is the flight deck of the most powerful space time machine in the known universe. Not a restaurant, but the French. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to go all Brexit on me at this point, aren't you? No, I'm, I'm not. Um, I, I was going to agree with you about his sexism. He never came out with comments like that, either. No. Um, I do stand by the fact that I like the way that the new series has made the TARDIS doors open directly. There's no interior and exterior doors anymore. It makes a lot more sense. But that happened in the classic series as well sometimes. It did. In do you the remember p- that fantastic shot on the sensorites? Yes. Um, it's about the best thing about the sensorites. And not that I actively dislike the sensorite, but it's brilliant. But that sequence where they go from the TARDIS through the doors into the flight deck of the it is. For 1964, that's a bloody brilliant shot. Yeah. And this is lovely. It's all hammer gothic horror. Some of the... and I mean, this is the scene. If you look at some of the shots here, look at that shot. That could be Hartnell. Yeah. You stand in the 
and in exchange you may speak with her again. Speak with whom? Oh, well, the, the tingle. I mean, you didn't know who was... Well, you did know who was going to walk out. Wouldn't have been if it was Susan. Who are you? Is he here? Is the doctor here? Doctor! I mean, oh. She is wonderful. By far my favourite companion of the modern era. Yeah. You don't have to concentrate. She had an unbelievably good writing out. That whole cyberization. My friend Bill it was fantastic. Oh. And then they diluted the whole effect by turning into a puddle. Um, it's like Clara. Clara had a fantastic writing out sequence and then it was, I can travel around the universe in between heartbeats. How is that even possible? This is my annoyance distilled with the Chris Chibnall era. We've gone for these woke companions. Look at us, we've got an Indian girl, we've got a black lad, we've got Hey, he's disabled as well, you know. We've got a female doctor. It never played a single part. Uh, first episode and last episode. And after that, oh, tiny bit in Orphan Whatever. Orphan 55? Yeah. He, he talks about it a bit when he's, at, um, you know, with that girl in the, in, in the sauna hiding from the... I've edited Orphan 55 out ever since the... Uh, the green hair and the bushy tail. What you describe as a furry. But you've got here, literally now, the series before, a black lesbian. And I just completely fell in love with Bill Potts. I just thought every time she, she bounced out of the TARDIS, it was just this thirst for adventure. Everything you want in a companion. Sunglasses. They're Sonic. Indoors. Sonic sunglasses. But she is, I'm with you. Um, Clara is still my favourite companion of the new Who era, but Bill's definitely a very close second. Who were you? She wasn't anyone. Tell for heaven's sake, will you put that ridiculous buzzing toy away and look at the... <laughs> I love that bit. Yeah. Because it, it harks back to a time when he just relied on his wits. A symmetrical. If it were computer generated, it wouldn't produce that effect. Yes. You're absolutely right. Ben, I should have noticed that. Well, it might help if you could see properly. <laughs> Here's what's going to happen. Fast. I'm going to escape. There's just a tingle. Escape. Oh, you don't get this tingle in the Chibnall era. And I'm taking Bill and the captain with me. Why? Are you advertising your intentions? Mr. Pastry's too, I could do with a man. <laughs> 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 oh, I'm going to do way more than escape. Who the... I love the fact that all these little retrospectives that they do every now and again, you'll get a flashback to McGann is front and centre now. This is why I love Nice of the Doctor so much. It put him there yeah. as part of the canon. And again, hopefully, he'll be there for the 60th. I would love to think so, because Paul McGann is immortal. He gets younger the older he gets. Have you seen him now? He's in his early 60s. He looks younger than he did in With Nile and I. 
Look at that, they've even got the bloody um, the pole thing from 10th Planet. The antenna. And with this one, they have a black. Yes. A black space before you walk through the yeah. interior. Why is Bernard Wilkie written on the console? It's a lovely nod, but why? Oh. Now, was there a single fan out there that didn't get a wonderful warm glow when they walked into the original white TARDIS console? The Astro the Astro when, was that a web planet thing? Web planet and Galaxy 4. Yeah, that's a Galaxy 4, that was it. And the clock that melted in um, Edge of Edge Destruction. The first Doctor in sunglasses. Never take those off. What's browser history? The only thing that I slightly don't like about this is that he make, they make the first Doctor a bit dim in comparison. Uh, in comparison, which, if you met yourself, or let's say you met yourself when you were 10, 12 years old, which would be the comparative... Uh, I don't think it would. I think it would be the comparison of meeting yourself when you're about 25 or whatever. <laughs> How are we now? Oh, my dear, I, I hope it doesn't offend you to know that I have had some experience on the uh, oh. sex. Me too. See, the captain's <laughs> a pawn, but the doctor's sort of hello. <laughs> Whereas the Hartnell doctor, I think, would have just been, oh, okay. But I don't think he'd have made that comment in the first place. No. I agree, I agree it, with you about that. What's a browser history? You, he's a time lord, of course yeah, he's going to he know. Now, he may have been saying that as a way of saying, I know what's going on. He's marvellous, but I preferred him with the big Pertwee hair and a jacket that wasn't ripped to shreds. I loved his outfit. You see, I loved his outfit when he did the whole shirt, waistcoat, velvet coat thing. I didn't particularly like all the hoodies. That's oh. the only thing. Oh. See, Daleks out of the casings can be done well, Chris Chibnall. And dates back to power. So it's not exactly a new thing. Did she ever meet the Daleks? I don't think she did. No, she um she did, but only in a sort of a cutscene thing. It was in the pilot, if you remember. He took her to uh, meet the Daleks to, so that they could exterminate the pilot. But it didn't work. You're looking right at me and you don't even know I'm here. Correct. The set is beautiful. And a really... <laughs> Which is a reference to. Uh, oh, was it the Sensorites? I think so. It's either Sensorites or Dalek Invasion Earth. I mean, I know we have this whole Professor Lumpkin thing, but 
And we just never ever talk about this again. Yeah, I hope we talk about it loads. Oh, Bill Pops. She reminds me so much of my sister. Another nip of brandy. So, that's where it went. I do like the fact that behind one of the roundels is a drinks cabinet. <laughs> a tiny, tiny drinks cabinet. With some Aldebaran brandy in it. Do you know the story behind the two... Uh, gold pillars in well in this and Adventure in Space and Time they'd gone to a prop store to find some set dressing for the TARDIS in Adventure in Space and Time and Mark Gacy's walked in and one of the first things he saw was the two gold pillars from the Hartnell TARDIS and they were the actual things we're having those so they are literally the actual things that were in 60s Doctor Who I think that's a lovely, lovely story. Why are you refusing the regeneration? Fear. I'm afraid, very, very afraid. I don't normally admit that to anyone else. Don't worry, technically you still have. All these scenes between the 12th and 1st Doctor, they're just magical. And actually, the set design is a really beautiful mix of this kind of thing, which is a very modern, big and dramatic and explosions and lots of space. But also there are bits that are really quite small and almost yeah. claustrophobically 60s. Really nicely designed. Because you wouldn't have had something like that tower in the 60s. But the, the South Pole was exactly the way it would have looked in the 60s. Corporal Jones. <laughs> All this stuff in the original TARDIS, it's just magical. It makes you yearn for more of these scenes to be available on in, in this sort of scope. I mean, look how cinematic they filmed it. You wish that there were, there were more scenes like this in the original yes. series. What a last hurrah to go out on. I can't express enough love for this episode. I do wish they'd got somebody with enough um, dramatic range to give this a bit more pathos. Apart from Margatis? Yes. Oh, he's doing a perfect job. No, I like yeah. him. I do like him in this. As a precursor to Lethbridge Stewart, I think he does a really good job. Got it. That's, that's where I'm different sides of the coin. And for the most part, I agree with you, but that particular scene, he could do to drop the stiff upper lip a bit, and I think it would work better. Let his defences down, and he wasn't at that point. It's also my argument with the prisoner. The Patrick McGowan stoic works for 99% of the prisoner, but there are just points where you want him to show a degree of emotion, and he doesn't have the range to do it. Amar Gatz is a perfectly competent actor, but in this, he is up against three superb actors in a four-hander, and he can't help but look a bit amateurish. Again, I think you've been a bit harsh. Um, But look who he's he's acting against. The other three are superb. He isn't. He's just... I think he does a really good job in this. Um, I think he does an adequate job, but I, I would have preferred them to get somebody who would do a comparably good job to what Capaldi's doing, what Bradley's doing. 
Again, here we've got a scene with the Twelfth Doctor and the Dalek from his second story. But we've also cut that with the First Doctor and Bill, and the scenes with the First Doctor and Bill, far more interesting. You're the first one, yeah? Like the, the original version of the Doctor. You're the one who stole the TARDIS and ran away. Why did you do it? There were many pressing reasons. I don't mean what you ran away from. What were you running to? Oh, that... Isn't that a Hartnell look? It was, you know, that stock image from um, the end of The Tribe of Gum. Yeah, that's that exactly. It. exactly. Well, the way that his hair's done in this particular scene is end of Tribe of Gum. I mean, that's a little bit bored, isn't it? But And, you know, with, uh, with things like Nightmare in Silver, where you suddenly have the, the Cybermen able to bore guys, people, and why haven't they done that before? Mm. Whereas with this, the whole Dalek hive mind, why don't we know about it before? Well, a Dalek would have to tell you, and they're not likely to. So I don't have a problem with that in the same way as I have with Nightmare in Silver. Nightmare in Silver just just went a little bit too nanotechnology for me. And I was so looking forward to Nightmare in Silver. Neil Gaiman. Yeah. And and after the Doctor's Wife. Bloke. Yeah. Perhaps it's just some bloke wandering around, putting everything right when it goes wrong. I mean, this is wonderful. I'm not having that somebody somewhere, one of the makeup artists or Stephen Moffat, one of the production crew, didn't tell them to do his wig in the same way that it was at the end of Unearthly Child because it is too, it's too perfect. Too perfect. Oh, Bill Potts, Pearl Mackey. You did such a good job. And look how fantastic a performance that is. You see what I mean here? The, that hologram thing. Black actress, she is the hologram. Black lesbian as a companion. They did diversity. It was just and in there. It it's was Jenny. Yeah. But it was... It, it's this fantasy that there's not been this diversity in television yeah. for years. That Doctor Who's been a purely white programme. It's a lie. <laughs> That's that. a great line. Oh, she's marvellous with that. Oh. The two TARDISes. I just. Can you imagine how impatient you'd be if you saw your own future that far in advance? Who, who are you talking about now? Me and you. I think. I'm willing to be corrected, but I think that's the only time we see the middle of the time rotor pulsing up and down in the whole of the use of that set. I've never once seen it. When time resumes, you will not remember this. A perception filter will also render us invisible. Yes, one imagines some of those words were attached to actual meanings of some sort. (laughs) 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 That, I agree, is perfect Briggs stuff. Gatiss. <laughs> Gatiss. He said Briggs. No, Brig. 
as in the Brigadier. Oh, right, right, right. Um, Captain Archibald Hamish, Lethbridge Stewart. I shall make it my business. Which I believe was a continuity error. Thank you so much. There was some convoluted, twisted thing with one of the uh, books that was... He was actually the Brigadier's uncle who had an affair with the Brigadier's grandmother and that he was the real ancestor. So even though he's portrayed as the grandfather, he's actually the great-uncle. But, I mean, that's all non-canon stuff. I do like this fact that they're portraying the First World War trenches as two lots of men who... They had no beef with each other. They were just mm. being told to kill each other. And they, they didn't, there was nothing personal about it at all. Christmas See, wouldn't this have been... This only happened once for some bizarre reason in the whole war. Wouldn't that have been a perfect end point to the war? <laughs> they sung Christmas carols to each other, walked out across no man's land, shook hands, played football. Instead of what really happened. The director of this, Rachel Tulele, <laughs> what a good job she did. Oh, I'd, I'd not even clocked that, that the 12th Doctor comes in. The first drink he has is brandy, and the last one he has is presumably brandy out of a hip flask. See, the one thing I've never understood, well, he's wearing woolen mittens there, mm. but for the whole episode he's been wearing leather gloves. Have you ever worn fingerless gloves? Yeah. They're very, very uncomfortable. The thing that slightly didn't make sense, and that's the bit, it seems a bit out of order, how does the TARDIS get back to the South Pole if they ca- if it can't navigate itself? Fast return switch. Order restored. But the fast return <coughs> switch would take it back to the Daleky place. Three times fast. If they could have done that, why couldn't they just take Ian and Barbara back? It what the idea of plot holes. You see, what I was assuming was that the first Doctor's TARDIS was kind of piggybacking on the 12th Doctor's TARDIS for this. That I thought uh, that's the, the impression that I got, yeah. They were, they were, they were slaves to each other. So. But, even, but the first Doctor's TARDIS had to be able, be able to get to Daleky Place, which it did on its own. But it had 12th Doctor's technology to be able to, mm. to drive it. Oh, my... Have you seen the community episode with Matt Lucas in? No. Oh, it's fantastic. They go to the Inspector Space Time Convention. Inspector Space Time. This is a lovely shot where they both disappear and he's left cuddling thin air. R2-D2. R2-D2. But 
the whole TARDIS burbling thing. I know, but that was set up beautifully in The Doctor's Wife, that the two of them do talk to each other. You wait a moment, Doctor. I've got a few things to say to you. Never be cruel, never be cowardly. I love pears. This is all a bit self-indulgent, wanky. I really wouldn't it have been lovely if he'd just come in and collapsed on the floor and regenerated. I don't really like these standing up ones. They could have skipped out all of that and just gone to those three. Now that's a nice touch. The ring slipping off the finger very much like the first Doctor. That's a very nicely done shot. It's not the best indictment of the first bunch of rest of the TARDIS tries to get rid of her. I mean, and still, here we are, sort of two series and catapulted into the third series later. We still don't know how on earth did she survive that fall? Um, yeah, but it was established right the way back to um, Tenant that immediately post-regeneration you can... First 15 hours sort of thing. It's still a bit shit. That bit I don't, I don't really have a problem with. I've got a problem with what came after it, but that bit, no. What did we think of that? I loved it. Absolutely loved it. This is going to be a short episode because we watched it rather than talked about it. We do sort of get lost in the moment. That was, to me, the perfect leaping off point. I, All right, just as uh, Russell T. Davis does with, with his um, original run as executive producer... There was a little bit of a loving for the regeneration before they sort of handed over the keys. I can forgive them. I don't agree with it. I don't think it enhanced the episode. But as a kiss goodbye, they ended on a high. I thought it was a, an absolutely beautiful marriage of two Doctor eras, harking right back to the original, not just in terms of picking up a character and plonking it into a new story and there you go, you get on with the new story and you're there as decoration, but there was a real feel of the first Doctor era as well. That bit on the the South Pole could have been made to look an awful lot more realistic than it did, but it was a real hark back to the way things looked in the 60s with the the backdrop and everything. And that has to be deliberate homage. The two Doctors bounced off each other absolutely beautifully. I'm with you in that I think they overplayed the sexism sexism and the lack of knowledge and lack of experience. Because things like What's a Browser History 
it's a throwaway line as a joke and you analyse it too much and it doesn't make sense. But anybody writing Doctor Who now knows that every line will be analysed the nth degree by middle-aged geeks sitting and podcasting. Can you imagine that ever happening? Um, yeah. I don't have enough love to pour on this episode. Still my favourite episode of Doctor Who of all time yeah. is The Day of the Doctor. This is in my top three, I think. I can watch this over and over and over again just for the spectacle. There's no plot. There really isn't a plot. All you're watching this for is the nostalgia trip. Even within the narrative, there's no evil plan. Don't know what to do if it's not an evil plan. It even acknowledges the fact that there's no plot, really. It's really a three-hander. I'm not including the captain in that because he's kind of set-dressing. And I appreciate that he has to be set dressing for his part in the plot. Yeah. But the, there's a there's a bit where I would just want to see Pathos played a little more competently than it was. But he, do, he does a perfectly reasonable job. I'm less harsh. Uh, um, I don't think it's being harsh. It is pointing out that he's not as good as an, an actor as the the other three who were putting in superb performances. And I, I don't think that's harsh. I think that's fact. I don't think there's anybody that could argue with that. Yeah, well, I can. I'm sat here. I, I really like you, Martin Gates' performance. You, th- you think it's as good as Capaldi's performance or Bradley's performance? Well, yeah, but it's not trying to be. The captain is not that depth of character. But that is exactly what I've just said. It's not as good a performance as the leads. Yeah, but it's not supposed to be. The, there the, is supposed to be an element of pathos in that whole, I believe that I was rescued. And he carries on doing the stiff upper lip and he, it fits in because it's well scripted. It would be much better if there was a bit more acting range. You see, all I see is Mark Gatiss doing what Mark Gatiss does on screen, which is perfectly what that role, that very specific role calls for. I agree. Which apart is a from that scene. Yes, I completely agree. <clears throat> apart from that scene. Yeah, he does a proto-brigadier perfectly, except where you want something a bit more. It's like Catherine Tate. Hmm. Catherine Tate does Stroppy and Entitled very, very, very well. And that is Donna. And when you crack under that, she's quite big-hearted. That is Donna for 99% of her time. And Catherine Tate does that very well because it's a caricature and she's a comic actress. Hmm. The moment you need something non-comic, the moment you need something with a greater emotional range, she can't do it because that that's not what she is. And for her, it's the final bit in The Silence in the Library where she's saying goodbye to her children and it doesn't work. Yeah, you've always said this, yeah. yeah. Now, that is a far bigger disjoint than this is. And Mark Gatiss with League of Gentlemen and all of that, his strength is his comedy. His strength is his caricature. He's very good at it. And the proto-brigadier called for caricature because the brigadier was a caricature. Yeah, yeah. The problem is that once you needed to see beneath the caricature, a comic actor can't give you that. And he didn't. And I think it would have been better if you could have had the bluff and bravado and the bluff and the bravado and the stiff upper lip and the English gentleman sniggering jokes and all of that. And then that break down and you see a degree of vulnerability. And we didn't see that. And I think that would have worked an awful lot better. But you would need somebody other than Mark Gatiss to play it because he is a comic actor. And what you needed was an actor. You argue a good case. I still disagree. Well, you're allowed to be wrong. I frequently am, apparently. No, there's no apparently about it. But I think we've gushed enough and analysed the tits off this thing. 
Bottom line. It's brilliant. I love Twice Upon a Time more than I can ever possibly put into a podcast. I could watch this over and over and over, not get bored. I absolutely love it. It's one of the best episodes of Doctor Who ever. Uh, if you've not seen it, everybody, where have you been? Uh, go out and watch it. It's, it is magical at Christmas. See, in the cold weather, you will love this. Around Christmas time, it was a great Christmas episode. Or even 23rd of November. Or even 23rd of November, which is what we are celebrating here. Happy 58 years, Doctor Who. Happy anniversary. But You're going to tell us at this point, I'm going to say, there's, there's going to be somebody that you want to get involved at this point. Siri? I am Persian. Name your price. Uh, this is where we uh, sort of look at the whole of the episode and think, Drag how draggy it. is it? It isn't really. It's not really. Nobody drags up for this. It's got to be a one, surely. Um, Who's got the best resting bitch face? The first Doctor? Well, quite literally, the glass mannequin. Uh, yes, fair dues. And you don't see it for very long, but Polly does have quite a quite a nice 60s frock, which is much more than Bill's outfit or the glass mannequin or Helen Clay's white jumpsuit. Does that actually count, considering she's wearing clothing from the time? Yes, of course it does. Okay, fair enough. So what, what are you giving it out of five? A one. I'm glad you concur with my appraisal. For all that we've got to say about this, the bottom line is, we love Doctor Who and we absolutely adored this. Go out and watch it, boys and girls. And it may not be from the classic era, but that doesn't stop it being a classic. Absolutely. And the last classic that has been made so far. But we live in hope. We do. But on that note, boys and girls, we shall sign off. Hope you've enjoyed our journey through this. We have rambled an awful lot, uh, slightly longer than usual, but we have a lot, a lot of love to give. Until the next time, we are going to sign off for another gin because we're we're at low tide here. See you later. Bye now. The Exton Moss experiment featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. All featured soundtracks are the property of their respective producers, and no infringement of copyright is intended. Title music was performed by the BBC Symphony Orchestra, and the programme was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.